Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my uh, Podbean podcasts and YouTube videos on GaudiMitzBez22.com uh, blog. Very meaningful conversation for me tonight. Uh, I've done maybe, I don't know, 60 or 70 of these interviews by now. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that uh, the topic tonight, and it is night here, uh, is probably the most meaningful topic that I've ever addressed in any of my videos. And what we're discussing here in this video is the intellectual legacy of da the, the late David L. Schindler, uh, who passed away uh, November 16th in 2022 at the age of 79 after some complications from uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and, and, and I'm just I'm saying this the most meaningful for me and I'll, for reasons that I'll get into. Uh, but first off, I want to introduce our, our, our guest. The first off uh, is David C. Schindler, the son of David L. Schindler, who is uh, the uh, pro professor of metaphysics and anthropology, unless this is out of date, at the John Paul II Institute studies on marriage and family in Washington, D.C. He's also the, the Ph.D. program director there and an editor at uh, Comunio, International Catholic Review. Uh, he is the author of many, 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 many books, and uh, I'm not going to go into any lengthy biographies here tonight, not even of that of David L. Schindler, who we'll be talking about, because if I were to list every book, every article, every accomplishment, I would be here for a half an hour introducing everything before we really got into it into things. So uh, first off, welcome, David, and thank you for coming here to share your insights with regard to your father's intellectual legacy. Uh, second, yeah. we're also uh, joined tonight by somebody that I'm meeting for the first time, uh, and that is uh, Ruben uh, Slife. And uh, Ruben is uh, now works for, for New Polity. Many of you are very, very avid followers of, of New Polity, the articles and so on online. And uh, a lot of Ruben's background is in theater, but because uh, Ruben was suggested to me by David Schindler to come on the show tonight, uh, I did not really get a chance to extensively look at his biography. So I'm briefly going to ask him to give us a little introduction to him so our viewers and listeners know who it is, who is Ruben Slife. Go ahead, Ruben. Uh, well, I don't have an extensive biography. Uh, <laughs> As, as you said, I uh, have a couple degrees in theater and somehow over the years have ended up doing theology uh, on that basis. Uh, and, and Balthazar is mixed up in there, but you know, not as directly as you might suspect with those two things. Uh, and uh, now I'm one of the editors of New Polity magazine, which I'm, I'm here in our podcast studio, so I have a stack of these. So it's not just articles online. There is a magazine and uh, also yes, yes. Uh, working with New Polity Press, which is why I ended up here tonight, because uh, I have been editing a book of David L. Schindler's essays on America, which involved me in sitting down and reading all of them. Uh, and the... Uh, the neoconservatives, you know, Father Newhouse and, and Weigel and Novak, and they're, they're back and yeah, forth with yeah. him. Uh, so digging up a bunch of things from first things. And we're, and we're, yeah, we'll probably get into that tonight as well. Well, thank you for that. Where are you originally from, by the way? Uh, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Georgia boy. Very good. Uh, from the, from the, the rural area of Georgia or, or Atlanta or. Um, I mean, about a third of the state's Atlanta, but uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, truer words were never spoken. Not, not anyway. too rural. Uh, yeah. okay. Not too not too Atlanta either. 
Yeah, I feel that I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, which means Lincoln's big enough to be a city, but not big enough to really count as anything major. And so people assume, oh, you're rural Nebraska. No, not really. And not really urban either. But anyway, and I have my colleague, my former colleague, Dr. Rodney Hauser, former chair of the theology department at DeSales University in Center Valley, Pennsylvania, uh, and one of my dearest friends in the world. Thank you, Rodney, for being here this evening. Uh, before we get into, I, I just want to say before uh, I'm going to give my own little personal story here. Uh, some uh, Rodney, and I think David have heard this before. The reason why this is meaningful to me is because uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say uh, that I owe my entire career to David L. Schindler. I do both when I was working on my dissertation on Balthazar, gaining insights from reading about him. But then when I was a fresh young assistant professor at what was then Allentown College of St. Francis de Sales, 1996, I got a small grant to do a conference on Balthazar. And I, I thought, well, I'm going to swing for the fences. And so I already had on board my dissertation director, Edward Oaks, SJ. And I thought, Dad Gummit, I really want David Schindler. And so I just looked him up online and there was stuff online in those days. I got a phone number and I dialed it thinking, well, I'll get an answering machine or I'll get a secretary. And instead I got, hello, this is David. And I thought, oh, my, I just about passed out of fright. My knees were buckling at that point. I didn't really want to access the great man directly immediately. I wanted the buffer of an answering machine so I could explain myself. So I had to immediately explain who I was and through quaking voice, explained the small amount of money I had to give out and blah, blah, blah. And he listened very patiently, very, very patiently. And uh, at the end of it got really quiet. And I thought, oh, geez, here we go. And he said, sure. Sure. I'll, 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 I offered him, in other words, please come up and give the keynote address. And he said, sure, absolutely. I'd be happy to. And, and I, I remember thinking, wow, that, that's, I, I'm just a nobody at some Bush League little school in the middle in Northeast PA. And the reason why that really made my Chris, because then I met people like Rodney at that conference. I met his son, David uh, C. Schindler, and people like Adrian Walker at that conference. And then I started publishing in Comunio because I got to know them and so on. And, and, and from there, my, my, not just in terms of the career, in terms of my life, but in terms of my intellectual trajectory. Uh, so I owe a lot to your father, David. And so I just wanted to say, that's why, uh, and of course, you know, I've, I've been in collaboration with Comunio for many years as has Rodney. And so it's just, uh, it's just very meaningful tonight for, for me to have this conversation with you all. Uh, so anyway, let, let's get let's get started. Enough of my autobiographical stuff. And the format for tonight is is going to be very informal, which is I'm going to throw out a topic. I'm going to start with Dave, but then anybody can let's I'm not don't treat this like I'm the Larry King figure here. <laughs> treat this as a conversation and anybody can jump in. I'm not going to mute and unmute people. Just uh, just jump into the conversation. Uh, I, I want to begin. Uh, I, I want to first off begin by thanking uh, another scholar, Tom Gourlay, who is in Australia at the University of Notre Dame. And he wrote, I thought, what was a really good summary of the significance of, of David Schindler's theology in Church Life Journal. And I'm kind of using his article as a kind of Grunschrift here uh, as, a, as a set of topics for going forward. And one of the first things that he brings up, and, and really this leapt out at me, and, and, I, and I couldn't agree more, and then... And I don't know if you want to start here, David, or not. You could start anywhere that you wanted. 
Well, first off, before before I start talking, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I start tossing topics out, David, yes. I'm going to start with you. Please all tell right. us in in your words, not mine. All right, what was what do you think is the chief theological <laughs> intellectual legacy of your? I remember I read a National Catholic Register article right after your father passed, where you referred to him as a philosopher monk, and that really that mm, really yeah. leapt out at me. So go ahead, just just go for it. Oh, you know, it's always it's the better, you know, someone in a way, the harder it is to summarize that person in a in a sentence. First of all, let me say uh, that conference that you talked about at the very beginning. I, I remember it very, very well. It may be the very first academic conference that I ever went to. Certainly uh, the first uh, one that was part of uh, I was also doing a dissertation topic on, on Balthazar. So yeah. Um, uh, it was the first one that was sort of connected to what I was working on, and I remember meeting, meeting uh, you all there. That was that was quite a quite a weekend. Anyway, it was three days. Peter Casarello referred to it as Larry's Balthazar Biodome because we never went anywhere. <laughs> we never yeah. left the Hilton. Everything was yeah. yeah so it was, uh, it was awesome though. I don't I don't remember I don't remember. Rem I do remember going back to my brother lived uh, nearby. I remember going back to his apartment at some point and watching the Deer Hunter. For some reason, but um, <laughs> I, I associate that with that anyway. But it was right. it was a wonderful conference. Thank you um, for that. It, yeah, I, um, you know, what is it? I let me let me maybe just say what I think. Um, so I, it's it's been very interesting. You know, he he died as you said now, um, uh, about a a year and a half ago, and um, I still get messages from people so i mean just like three days ago i got a long email from someone and um you know this was expected in a certain sense right after he died but it's been remarkable i mean and even that was kind of an, an overwhelming thing but um uh to to still get uh these messages these heartfelt letters from people um who just want to say what my um, father meant to them and that that's i mean it's it's always very humbling and 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 beautiful to hear but i i think it brings home something you know for him um theology was never ever uh a, just an academic discipline except the way he understood academic discipline i mean maybe maybe, maybe in a way you could say it was the the paradigm academic discipline the way the academy was meant to be um, and I mean, this is where the the uh, the the theologian monk. I don't recall making that comment, but but that sort of captures what I have in mind here. That um, there was there was such uh, there there was almost no distinction between my father's thought and his um, and his life in a way, or his being. Um, uh, you know, in terms of like his 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 mind, his brain, and his heart were almost a single organ. I mean, it was quite a, quite a, quite a thing. And um, every, every thought that he had, he would pour his whole being into and live it as a, as a kind of life and death drama. Um, and uh, was never um, uh, satisfied until he could get to the core of something. 
and and um, the, the 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 only thing, so in in I mean, what one of the interesting paradoxes about about him is that he, in one sense, in one sense, had a kind of an infinite patience for with people who were um, true. Yeah, um, but yeah. he had absolutely no patience for any kind <laughs> of falsehood or superficiality or um, lack of courage, cowardice. I think yeah. um, cowardice in a in a kind of um, self like political self seeking, a kind of superficial success uh, drove him. Yeah. I mean, it would keep him up at night. Um, he had he had what I like to refer to as a jeweler's eye for bullshit. And- <laughs> and and, uh, yeah that's that's what drew me to him go ahead yeah so and and i think i mean in a way that that's not just a way of being but it also is the content in in a sense you know that 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 um the the unity of theology theology and spirituality or the unity of of thought and action the idea that um uh the way we lived life in the world was itself a kind of um uh interpretation of the uh it, it was metaphysical it was an yeah. interpretation of the meaning of being and that's why you know this theme was so constant for him that there's no such thing as a, a neutral political order or um uh this idea that somehow technology is neutral or the idea that um the 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 university and the the self conception of the university is is neutral, or that economics is neutral. I mean, this this criticism of the uh, pretended neutrality of these various dimensions of life, where and and I think disclose it, dis, um, unmasking that you might say might be. I, I don't know that I would. Uh, settle on that as as his most important idea but let me just start with that anyway here and say i think that might be one of his most important um yeah Um, i mean it was incredibly formative so the the coming together of theology and sanctity the universal cult to holiness yeah uh yeah the, the 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 no opposition between praxis and doctrine these are important ruben go ahead um i was never able to meet him unfortunately um but having sat down and read hundreds of pages of, of his work chronologically yeah. and the people he was arguing with. Uh, one of the things <sighs> that sort of surprised me is how, despite that it's extremely academic mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. is how obvious it became reading mm-hmm. all of that, mm-hmm. that it meant something to him personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, I, I couldn't say for sure where, now in all of it but there were just moments where i could see it and i thought that mm-hmm. is a clear sign that this is a man who's saying something that that matters to him in a very profound uh existential sort of way uh that that he wasn't just critiquing you know, america and things going wrong but it was something that he suffered from and bore and mm-hmm. uh, was making sense out of his own life through it seemed to me right. pretty clear yeah. um and also, I, I'm speaking about things here I don't know as well as some of the rest of you do, but it, it seemed to me there's a sort of similarity and difference between him and, and Balthazar, whom mm-hmm. he's, of course, very indebted to, uh, especially as, as time goes on, the citations increase. But Balthazar, everything he says is about love. Mm-hmm. 
but it seems like what he wants to do in sort of the first instance is theology. Like he wants to show you yeah. love. Mm -hmm. um, whereas it, it, it seems like uh, David Schindler, his, what he wants to do is help you love. Not that Balthazar doesn't, but it's like yeah. he's trying to show it. And he, yeah. the weird thing is that Balzar speaks like a spiritual director, yeah. whereas Schindler <laughs> speaks like an academic philosopher. Uh, yeah. When I think he's much more directly trying to help people figure out how in the modern world they're living in to yeah. love yeah. like Christ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. I agree. I think that's, that's, I think that's kind of a brilliant insight, actually. Uh, and and something I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to think about a little more length. Rodney, did you have anything you want to add before I, I go on to the next topic? No, I mean again, j j you know, maybe just a little bit of a, uh, an auto autobiographical note from my part too is, um, you know, growing up Protestant and then going to Marquette to get a you know a PhD in theology. And and being sort of very disappointed, to be honest with you, with with the approach to theology that I was getting, like I was expecting, you know, I've been reading Thomas, you know, and 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 Chesterton and people like that, and I thought, oh, this is very attractive. This is why I want to go to a Catholic university. And then, you know, I got to Marquette, and it was <laughs> you didn't have Chesterton. It's like the yeah, like the, the, wow, this is, doesn't feel like what I've been reading at all. And um, and I stumbled. I was in the library at, at at one point, just going through the journals. You know, yeah, kind of at random. You know, I wasn't really doing any specific research. And this communio, you know, I was like, "What's that?" And I and I grabbed it, and I was working in the library. It was the summer, and I had a, I had a part time job in the library, and. Uh, I would just go up and grab things and come down and read them at the desk until people would come ask me questions at the desk. And, uh, and I just randomly opened up to this article by, uh, you know, big Dave. And, uh, it was, a, it was in him engaging the, the, uh, first things crowd. And I was just a subscriber to first things. And I was very much, uh, had been sucked into the neocon thing. And, it was almost like scales fell off my eye. I, I read it and, and it's like you said, Ruben, it's, it's, it becomes, it's like, it's obvious once you, once he says it, you're like, wow, like, why didn't, didn't I see that? How could I have missed that? And it really helped me to understand what was going on at Marquette, why I didn't feel like I fit in very well there. Like everything just came together for me. Um, and it was really transforming and it, it emboldened me. I, I, I no longer thought that I was the crazy one necessarily, but maybe that yeah. something else was crazy or whatever. And uh, so it's, 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 it's similar, you know, to what David and Ruben said, it's, it's, it's an eye-opening experience to see the thing. And then once you've seen it, it just helps to make so much sense of so many things around us, you know, uh, that my experience at Marquette, but then also, you know, my experience in a, in a university now, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that would just be my first, uh, you know, yeah. thoughts out of the thing. Yeah. I think that the, yeah, for me, the, the, the scales fell off my eyes too, and reading him and, and some others, because what it is, is that it, 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 there's a clarity, there's a clearing of the fog. And I think the reason for that clearing of the fog, and this is my next point, 
is that, I mean, in his heart and soul, it seems to me, David, that, that your father was a, a metaphysician, right? He loved yeah. metaphysics, which meant he had this uncanny ability to follow an idea through logically to its absolute foundational metaphysical presuppositions. And that is what thrilled me and exhilarated me in reading anything your father ever wrote was that you knew that by the end of that 60 page article, the idea in question was going to have been beaten around senselessly (laughs) until you had it had been reduced to its metaphysical core and at its root though. And this brings together his metaphysics, his theology and his, his spirituality and, and his quest as, as Ruben pointed out to actually show people love. And I mean, to get people to how, how do I love better? He had an ability to do this in a way uh, to get to the metaphysical, metaphysical roots of things that then, showed us what modernity was about and what, in my opinion, in what he was about more than anything else. And this is what I go on and on about. And so much of what I write is the loss of the memory of God, what Rod Singer called the eclipse of God. So maybe you could comment on that now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that that's the, in a way, the heart of his uh, criticism of, of, of liberalism and you know it was one of the things they were so concerned about um catholic having a certain special responsibility to recall um our attention to in the in the the american context which is dominated by you know a liberal uh fundamental liberal presuppositions um and you know this is one of the reasons it, it troubled him so much to see prominent catholics um um, just missing this point and, and therefore in a way, uh, you know, consciously or, or otherwise sort of colluding with, with um, uh, an American project, which ultimately I think is, is, is anti-Catholic in some really basic way. We can get into that. But anyway, yeah. the, the memory of God, I mean, the point there, it's, it's fascinating if you read um, Augustine's Confessions, Book 10, where he, uh, you know, the famous text on memory, yeah it's really interesting you know he asks um it, you know why why does he suddenly after telling his life story have this um fairly profound and complex and rich discussion um reflection on the nature of of, of memory it uh the con- in the context he's he's trying to find out where he most basically encounters god mm-hmm. and it's so interesting that that um that turns out to be not the will not the intellect in the first place, but in the memory. Now, what, memory. what what's the significance of that? It seems to me that that um, uh, I think there's a lot to be said about that. But one of the points is, uh, you know, if you think about God as simply an object of your will or simply an object of your mind, that there's a, there's a certain sense in which your your agency has a kind of priority over it. It's one of the things that you see in front of you, and therefore one of the options that you choose from. Um, whereas if you say memory. Uh, it's it's you encounter God first in your memory, first in your memory. I mean, think about that. That's there's such a beautiful paradox already there. It means <laughs> that you you encounter you encounter God as always having preceded you, mm-hmm. and so your your relationship to God is radically receptive and responsive, and you are called to 
um, and uh, br bring your make yourself present to God, even as you make God present to yourself, um, and and recognize God's God's you know the Prius as as um, Fernand Ulrich always uh, talks about the the priority the the, the radical priority of God. Mm. Um, you know, this is a theme in 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 Ratzinger, but it, but it's but it's I think for my for my father, it's sort of set into into relief in as stark a way as possible. What's missing in liberalism? God is 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 an option, and therefore, you know, a matter of 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 subjective private belief um, rather than being a presence that is always already in my very being mm. that I then call to mind um uh already there yeah 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 wow that's ruben do you have... be interesting ruben i know ruben you um you have read my dad's writings on america much more carefully than i ever did <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> um uh, i i would i would be interested uh to know i um like the the theme of memory of god is that something i don't recall him using that kind of language in the beginning of his debates with the neocons it seems to be something that emerged later but you probably have a have a read on that um i i don't have all the details of the essays fresh in my memory you know if, if you'd caught me three yeah, months ago yeah. maybe but As um i i yeah. definitely write that the the memory of god language shows up um later on mm -hmm. uh i think mainly after benedict is pope actually mm. uh, and the the essays start in the late 80s so there's there's some distance where that's not in there but there's i mean there's always something like it uh his the earlier essays approach um things more from the standpoint of nature and grace uh, and so it's it's explicitly mm -hmm. coming from a a Christological perspective of you know the Son being the one who receives and that we are brought into the Son. That's the essence of Christianity. And so our relationship is first one of receiving, um, and that yeah. you know the all the Son is comes from the Father. So it's in there in that form. But it, it his argument actually becomes more metaphysical over time it's not that it isn't it's obviously mm. metaphysical from the beginning but it's a more explicitly it seems to me like he distinguishes the theology from the philosophy more as time goes on mm. not not in a way that separates them but i don't know if that's ulrich or what because i haven't read him but it, it seems like probably based on some of the citations <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 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 that's interesting i mean i I, th I think that he got the language of memory of god from ratzinger um directly but as as you say i mean i think it resonated so much with him because it was always the theme of his of, yes. of his thought um yes that's but, one of the uh, things yeah. about the essays is the terms change sometimes but the thought it's, it's a it's deepening all, yeah. of the thought but it's not yeah the, the terms may yeah. shift entirely like the yeah. first article is about you know, the title is america bourgeois yeah and they go back and forth you know him and, and some of the others arguing with him about the term bourgeois and then it, it's given up for yeah. 30 yeah. years and then it appears yeah. in the last essay he wrote. Is that right? Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, just a thought I, um, that's, I think, related to this is he has this profound understanding of the nation of uh, the, the notion of religio, re religion. Yeah. 
right? Which is, which is, I think from pretty early on, you know, I, I can't do the, the uh, chronology right now in my head, but um, what he understands, it seems to be way before most people understood this or got this, it's kind of becoming a little bit like people realize this now, but um, secularism and a, a, a particular understanding of the nature of religion are, are, are two sides of the same coin. So it's a, so so what he sees is that there is a misunderstanding yeah. of the yeah. nature of secularity, yeah. right? right? At the same time that there's a misunderstanding of what religion is, right? So that so that so that people can say that oh no, religion is flourishing in America, right? Even though America is secular, it's flourishing for X, Y, and Z. Sometimes it's statistics, or sometimes it's like well, look at these new spiritualities that are happening, and it's in American soil and all this stuff. But what, what your father seemed to get was that in, in some ways, what was being talked about there was almost the exact opposite of religion, right? In, in, in kind of the sense that Locke, I think, invents the notion of religion that, that is radically um, turns it on its head. So religio is to bind yourself to something, as you were saying, David, earlier, prior to yourself. It's something yeah. that's always out in front of you. That's right. It's there, you're you're binding yourself to it because you feel like it's going to fulfill you or make your life better, but it's not, you're not, you don't have priority. In fact, you're actually right. kind of, in all these right. great religious traditions, the self has to be made little <laughs> in order to enter into something right. something bigger. Okay. Locke totally reverses this, right? In the, in the letter right. of intolerance, it's a voluntarist, private subjective i mean we can do all the terms and it's it's therefore the perfect counterpart to secularism yeah, yeah. even though there yeah. is this kind right. of religion flourishing so to speak in a secular society it flourishes precisely as false religion yeah. right so it's not yeah. it's not really religion flourishing yeah so. that's right yeah, so I, right. I, that would just right. i think that's kind of related well, to and, yeah. and, and it's and and i think one of the things that uh your father understood as well is that despite this emphasis on the subjectivity of, of religion, which kind of turns it in some ways on its head, it, it became as well a kind of reified, essentialized thing okay, yeah. that, that was then atomized, which then could be easily sequestered and domesticated and set aside. Of course. Right, right, yeah. right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it becomes in a way, you know, it's the, um, you know, what one of the, Maybe uh, less um, noticed themes. I think in my in my dad's thought is uh, when I put it this way: this this the interest in the infinite, um, uh, infinity. You know, and uh, um, I I know that you know that was especially uh, a, a language he was interested in, in the beginning. You know, really early on when when he had his. Uh, um, uh, uh oh. It looks like uh, David's frozen a little bit here. One of the process theologians and stuff, but he was okay. Um, sorry, hmm. am I? Am I? Am yeah, I? Yeah, uh, yeah. Your your uh, your video is frozen. At least okay. Am I, I think you're back. Up a little bit? Oh, you're back. Oh, so, you're back now. First, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I don't. Uh, that's never happened with this. I got a. Anyway, all right. But just to go, back, you know, the, this this notion of the of the infinite, and that that's the thing. I think you know, uh, um, if God is infinite, 
then um, God affects, as my dad always used to say, you know, everything all the time. There's nothing that isn't sort of implicated and therefore um, doesn't itself implicate God. And, you know, part of the um, the connection between what what Larry, you and Rodney were saying is that that in both cases, you're, you're, you're kind of finitizing God. You're making God a kind yeah. of contained, whether it's contained in your subjectivity, mm-hmm. you know, this is a private belief or um contained as a kind of um political entity or something that yeah. then can be given its proper place within a public square that's defined on terms other than those presented by the church um or by god ultimately the incarnation you know by the trinity um but it's they're they're forms of the same problem this, this, and as you point out in your book the politics of the real and uh, not to start talking about your legacy yet <laughs> instead of your father's. But I mean, one of the upshots is, of course, then that the, the, the hegemony of liberalism is precisely that it's it is its own self-limiting principle, that there yeah. is no self. The very the very action of saying we grant you religious freedom is yeah. itself a usurpation of the natural authority that Christianity uh, the religio already has the state has no providence to dispense such freedoms to i mean uh it, it is self it is limited by those by those entities if you want to call them entities and yet in liberalism it there is there is no outside limiting principle of any kind yeah no i mean and that's the problem whenever you have that sort of i mean i think i think that self-limiting principle and this is very much in the spirit of my my father's thought even if he didn't exactly always use this language but you know and, and th- this this idea that that self-limitation um is an adequate uh um uh resolution of these various problems i mean i think that's like one of the common threads of all of the dimensions of of, of modern thought and 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 in every use of it you always see how it dialectically turns into its opposite i mean so the, the most obvious and explicit direct case is when ta- when kant talked about um uh, uh you know setting limits to reason in order to make room for faith right i mean the, the famous yeah. line what he was that that's what the critique was about was establishing the proper limits of reason but i mean what did he do i mean then you know the next the next book or <laughs> down the, the line is, yeah religion within the bounds of reason that's exactly that's exactly what happened and it happens in every case so uh, unless unless limits arise through the encounter with something that's greater and then a kind of receptive and responsive uh relation to that it's all they're all there's always going to be a kind of built-in disorder Mm, and that's you know that's the kind of thing that we that we're living in uh, I'm going to come over to Ruben here in, in a second. So Ruben, be, be thinking of you, of anything you want to uh, add to what David just said. But before we do, I just want to go back to what you said, David, about your father. Uh, a neglected aspect of his thinking is his emphasis on the infinite. Yeah, I, I actually, the, my favorite thing that I ever r- read by your father was an essay he wrote on T.S. Eliot. And oh, yeah. Time, and, and it was about time and eternity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that one. Uh, and I just thought I was almost moved to tears reading that thing because I could tell by then I already knew your father well. Yeah. yeah. But and, and I could tell this this was an essay directly, not just from his mind, but from his heart. Mm-hmm. And and it was a reflection not just of his intellectual life, but of his prayer life and the coming together of the two. 
Mm -hmm. it, it, it was, I thought, just a magnificent thing, yeah. which emphasized the core message of Christianity and the incarnation, yeah. that we, yeah. we encounter God in and through time and the yeah. world of things, yeah. and not around them or under them or above them, but through them. And I, I, I just thought it was a magnificent That That, that is a really beautiful. And, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if you know this, but for a couple of decades, actually, um, he would begin every class he taught by uh, reading a portion of uh, the four quartets. Um, and he would just read it and then uh, and then have a moment of silence and he would start teaching class. So he wouldn't comment. He wouldn't teach it. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, after he would pray, <laughs> you know, a Hail Mary. Um, he always he always said the Jesus prayer, too, which is really, I think, intriguing. I don't know of any teacher that begins with. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son yes. of the and God have mercy on me, a sinner. But they um, should. But, yeah, they should. Oh, yeah. boy, I should have. That's for sure. <laughs> but then he would read a passage from the four quartets. I mean, he did that for years and years. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, that T.S. Eliot was dear to him. And I think that's one of the reasons why that essay is so powerful and i always ignored Eliot as, as a young scholar myself and and as i always thought i got no time for poetry i gotta get down to the metaphysical gobbledygook that i'm engaged in here and uh, it was it was later in life that i discovered Eliot, and and so i read your father's essay and thought it was yeah. great but anyway ruben we we dragged you on here into the in the dead of night <laughs> so let's at least give you a chance to get a word in edgewise here um well uh Strangely enough, even though I did not know I was going to be doing this until this morning, <laughs> a couple yeah, hours, right. I, couple I hours was, ago, I was of all the possible things reading last night, your father's, I think, first published essay, okay, um, which is on um, Whitehead, yeah, and creativity. Right. And yeah. Uh, since you since you mentioned the infinite, I, I thought it might be interesting to read a passage here because I've sure. never thought much about Whitehead in my life, yeah, process thought you know and he didn't after the early years but but i think it did anyway go ahead read the passage i, mean, I, 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 really I grew up as a methodist so my experience of process thought was theologians saying idiotic things yeah. um and, uh, yeah. and i i grew up in a very fine methodist church and knew a lot of great people so they they the meth process people were far away but i knew of them and that's all i knew but uh near the end of this essay he, he writes he's comparing aristotle and and whitehead hmm. parallel is this for Aristotle, the central concern is with individuated substances, that is, with the coming to be and the passing away of the individual substances bearing the forms. His concern is not with the actuality, that is, the very existence of the forms themselves. Their existence is taken for granted. That is, for him, they only need material support, so to speak, for their existence. That's why you know they're differentiated with, with matter. Uh in this sense, the world is eternally given for Aristotle. For Whitehead, the central concern is with actual entities. That is, with the process or ongoingness of the actual entities which embody creativity. His concern is not with the actuality that is the very existence of the process itself. Its existence is taken for granted. Hmm. In this sense, the world is likewise eternally given. Hence, while the two thinkers differ as to where they locate actuality, they nevertheless are one in their failure to ultimately ground actuality, mm. the very existence of reality. And so then he moves from there to Aquinas and that you have to have the, the existingness existing somewhere. And so it can't just be in the things. But yeah. I, yeah. I, I thought the basic thought 
coming yeah. from the process background, he seems to have caught on to the fact that that things are, and yeah. that the, like the new being of each thing is extremely significant. Right. And that seems to have led him into, I, I don't know how the actual thought process worked, but led him into Aquinas and essay and the whole idea of the infinite, right. which is missing in Aristotle almost entirely. Right. Uh, right. And that Whitehead wants to have, but can't have without God. Yeah. Yeah. So the it, it seems like what you're saying about T.S. Eliot and the yeah, you know, God being right. present in the things, through the things, to us in time is is in some way what he got out of process thought, yeah. which is not yeah. what I've ever seen but, anybody but, else do. Yeah, or credit, but it, but it, but it's interesting because it, I mean, uh, at first I thought that the passage was going to just um, present Whitehead as a better alternative to Aristotle. What's fascinating is they appear to be opposites, and he's saying that they actually share the same deficiency. And that that is so classic dad in a way and 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 uh and and you're absolutely right you know the 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 point is this discovery of of the actual you know the actual the actuality of all acts and the perfection of all perfections the actus ascendi um essay the act of being that that theme is absolutely you know always was the guiding principle of his philosophy no 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 question and what's what's beautiful about I agree with your assessment of what he's doing there, David. And and what's beautiful about it is that what what he recognizes is that when you're dealing with a great creative thinker, an original thinker, whether it's Aristotle or whether it's Whitehead, you come and you really do a deep dive into their thinking. What you come to see rather quickly is that every great and original thinker really does grasp the nettle of the problem. Yeah. And and he appreciates their grasping the nettle of the problem. Yeah. Even right. if he doesn't completely agree with how they resolve yeah. Yeah. those yeah. Gordian knots. Right. No, I, I, I think that that, um, that made a huge impression on me uh, early on and along the way is that the, the desire to do justice to and receive and see the, um, you know, I mean, that 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 affected I think that w- that affected the way he interacted with people individually. Um, yes. Uh, yes. You know, I mean, he uh, he had this conviction that he would articulate from time to time that there is no human being that um, is not interested most fundamentally in meaning. Mm. Um, uh, we are creatures of and for meaning yeah. and. And however superficially we may act at the root of our um, self-deluded desires is a desire for meaning. And that, that then, if you, if you believe that, that actually affects the way you treat people and the way you talk to them and the seriousness with which you take them and so forth. I mean, it, it sort of gives a weight to um, every dimension of a person, um, which you know, makes it a big impression on people, I think. It does. Which explains, David, what you said earlier about his impatience with people he perceived to be perhaps uh, calculating all the time to see how Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. they think or say is going to affect their perhaps career or or whatever. Right. It's something I never, ever saw in in your father. Um, it didn't matter who the person was, no matter how high on the pecking order, or how low yeah. on the pecking order, he, yeah. he wanted to get to the bottom of things with them. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, right. so, he, yeah. so he ended up treating everybody very similarly simply yeah. because of the fact that what he cared about was getting to the bottom of things. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, so it didn't That's matter. That's really well put. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I, think I, just yeah. Noticed, well, I always true. noticed that he was never, you know, there are people that, you know, you go to conferences and are always looking over your shoulder to see if there's somebody more important than you in the room. And always there's somebody more important. <laughs> that, was, that, 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 that was, that was Ed Oaks. That was Ed Oaks. And I can Maybe say that Ed is in heaven now looking down at me. He was my <laughs> dissertation director. And uh, there, there are two individuals who would always make you feel like you were the center of attention and nobody else mattered that I've met in my life. And one of them was David Schindler and the other was Joe Fessio. And, oh, wow. and you know, Fessio is also like this great guy, great man who could easily be talking with, you know, presidents and potentates. And yet when he's talking to you, mm-hmm. he's talking to you. Yeah. Ed, Ed was always, hey, hi. And he's like looking over your shoulder, see if Richard Newhouse is having another caviar or not. And, oh, there's Richard having more caviar. I've run over there now. Uh, so, yes. Uh, and I anyway, God bless Ed Oaks. And uh, but anyway, um, I, I just sort of laughed myself right out of the, my 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 train of thought and all this. Regard. Can, oh, I, I, can I, I raise a question? Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. You raise a question. Go ahead. It's your well, show really tonight. <laughs> I, I uh, um, you know, it's 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 interesting. Um, so a lot of the things that my my dad cared about, you know, one, one basic thing that we've talked about is is his criticism of liberalism um and you know when he would talk about it it you know nobody had any idea what he was talking about i mean it really was just like he was speaking a foreign language i mean there 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 are a couple people you could point to like alistair mcintyre you know george grant there there were certain people figures um um in that sort of early moment but but for the most part it was just you know these kinds of observations would be met with just a simple incomprehension. Now, you know, it's pretty, you know, the, the uh, criticism of, of liberalism are far more pervasive and, com- you know, popular in a way than defenses of liberalism. I mean, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but, the, you know, these oh, various- I, I, yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I mean, yeah. I remember as a young guy, it's just getting started. I, I, post-liberalism was just not a thing oh it wasn't yeah and your father was one of the very first that's why i said scales fell off my eyes like rodney when i yeah. read him it's like wow that's yeah. what he was my first exposure really to a catholic post-liberal thinker yeah he was he was kind of a pioneer but see here's the thing though it doesn't seem like the post people in the very even catholic post-liberal movements um uh they don't mention my my father not and not not that i think but it, but it you know, and he, and he, in a certain sense, is the last person that would ever want attention drawn to himself and that kind of thing. But I mean, it's just it's just curious to me that, um, uh, you know, his place doesn't seem to to be remembered in in so much of these discussions. I, is that is that just my impression or have you all had no. that impression? And do you have any no. idea of why that's the case? Um Hmm. I think I do. Okay. <laughs> Having read all this, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that's puzzling to me looking mm-hmm. at the essays is, well, one, out of the gate, he gets accused of being an integralist. <laughs> yeah, um, that's so yeah, that's right. That's out right. of the gate. I mean, it is in the 80s. Yeah. Um, that's and that, that exact word is being leveled against him. Yeah. His first essay, however, he's basically all over it. The first one on America, I mean, mm-hmm. in 87. Um, he... Mm-hmm. 
is talking about how he's not advocating a monism. He's not saying <laughs> we just need to make the world all one thing. We have to have an idea and just force the world to conform to it. But that's how everyone sees him. Yeah. Because yeah. he criticizes liberalism. So they think you you don't like freedom. Yeah. Uh you just want truth to 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 reign supreme over everything. And uh I mean they never do quite get it. I, I have here a um this is Father Newhouse's review of Heart of the World Center of the Church. Oh wow. And <laughs> oh my <laughs> I bet he loved it. I what's that? I bet he loved it. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the review, but uh oh geez. I don't I don't know where to where to hop into this, but uh I've lost my train of thought here. Um I also confess to being a mite irritated when informed that I do not understand that the alleged neutrality of liberalism is typically not neutral toward religion. The word typically is doing a lot of work there because, of course, yeah. David Schindler never said it was typically not neutral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said it yeah. was not neutral. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wrote a book on that. There's received some little tension. It was called The Naked Public Square. Um yeah. Oh, here we go. This is what I was thinking of. He fails to see. Uh, Schindler demands that we join him in railing against the idolaters. As a consequence, he ends up undercutting the comprehensive Catholic nature of the gospel he espouses. Positioned in such an antithesis to culture, Catholicism begins to look very much like a sect, which I am sure is not what Schindler intends. Moreover, he fails to see that direct evangelization through the reiteration of his favored theological formulas is not the only form of service to God and neighbor. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how you, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough book, but I, I yeah. find it hard to understand reading the whole thing and coming away with, he wants us to repeat his favorite formulas. Right. And right. Uh, it's, all he wants is direct evangelization when that's not even what he's doing. No, uh, that's, yeah so, i mean you I mean, can see my <laughs> my dad had a temper and i can imagine him reading that and uh just being i mean but but uh he you know he he uh it was always a struggle to to you know maintain a sort of charity every once in a while in his response to to these people you see him you see him lose a little bit of his temper but i i i, I, I think saw... actually the 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 second essay he wrote mm -hmm. you see it and after yeah. that point, yeah. I don't see it again. Yeah, mm. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, uh, and he, in fact, I, actually retracts some of his comments from that second essay in a later one. Oh, does he really? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think he, oh. I think he, he uh, you know, the thing is, it's kind of interesting. I mean, he was always, he, he was always um, sort of self-scrutinizing, you know, is, is the way I'm writing um, uh, just... <sighs> Um, and and is it is it is it in harmony with what in fact I'm trying to communicate and that you know that that kind of thing I mean he would just torture himself over that was that was always a process but I I think it it may be in part because of the experience he had venting in that as that that one essay and then um, and then just realizing that there was no fruit born from it I, I will say that after Heart of the World Center of the Church. He basically never mentions any of the neoconservatives again. Oh, that's in, interesting. In written work. It's like he wrote a book engaging with him and now he was done. 
Wow. Um, But where I was going with that is people seem to have heard him as an integralist, as just wanting to apply (laughs) truth to situation. And he gets accused very early on of not accepting Dignitati Sumane. And he seems genuinely surprised at this accusation. And I I don't know how to understand this exactly. I mean, I'm fairly young, so I didn't experience the, the Catholic theological environment in the u.s back then yeah but he, he seems to me to sometimes have a sort of naivete about like mm-hmm. how well up everyone else is on the theology mm-hmm. uh and so they come at him and say why don't you believe in dignitatis humanae and he just seems puzzled yeah and he says well i do and and then like 10 years go by 15 years and then he has to write a whole book on it because they yeah. couldn't understand yeah. what he was saying yeah and so yeah. it seems like for him the critique of liberalism I think frequently he expresses it in a form that's not quite helpful. Mm. Um, at least now, maybe then it was was more helpful. But he he says that everything you do implies a vision of the meaning of being and of God, God's relation to the world. It implies a theology. Right. There's no way to escape this, and so he's 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 attacking the idea that like systems of America are just neutral and you can use them any old way. He says no, no, right. it implies a view of the world. Yeah. And there's a certain way of reading that, at least, which he did not intend, yeah. where you say, well, if everyone is just making claims about the nature of all reality and enforcing it on us, let's just get down to it, shall we? Yeah. yeah. Let's enforce some claims. Right. And uh, it, it sort of turns into a like, presuppositionalist fideism. It's like, well, the government right. must enforce the claims because somebody's got to do it. We might as well enforce right. the right ones. Right. And right. that's not what right. he meant when he said that. Right, right. And what he was seeing was what he had took Dinitatis Humanae to mean, exactly. which is that everyone, like you were saying, their lives are engaged with meaning, with truth from that's within. True. And you have to help them see where that is happening mm-hmm. and open it up and bring it out because freedom is religious and that's everyone true. is religious, which means they're free. Yeah. And, uh, you know the, the 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 criticism of American neutrality, I think, has to be like understood sort of carefully, yeah. Because it's not saying you're trying to be neutral, but you're enforcing claims. Therefore, let's just enforce correct claims. Right. That's right. It, it's it, we're all arbitrary, oh. and so it's just a matter of why not be arbitrary in a but, Catholic way rather than yeah, like, exactly. Right. The, he likes freedom from the beginning. Yeah, you know, yeah, everyone yeah. is freely That's engaged with the meaning of their lives. Let's help them see that instead of making them think they can just yeah. pick a meaning. You and, can't just pick and, a meaning. Yeah. And a dimension that that um you know when he uh he would use language like like development of doctrine and and he he said, you know, in a certain sense Dignitas Humani did represent a kind of development of doctrine, but not in the way it's typically understood. For him um uh that there's a there's a, a reciprocal an essentially reciprocal relationship between freedom and truth yes and i think this is what, sort of what you're getting at ruben that that um you you know the 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 more traditional uh insight which is indispensable is that um there is no such thing as freedom without truth that freedom is grounded in uh, reason and a true perception of things. But he, he said that one thing that we might recognize as having uh, the church as having sort of deepened an insight into is that, it, that there's a kind of reciprocity. It's also the case that the, the truth 
that sets us free is a truth about love, the truth that God is love and that love is the meaning of being. And that means that um, in, a cer- in a certain sense, it can't properly be, aff- truth can't be properly affirmed except in and for freedom in this kind of free way. So, so truth begets freedom, you know, freedom in a certain sense, freedom enhances truth and truth um, uh, secures freedom, that those are the, the reciprocal connection. Right. Between right. And I, I mean, I think even those statements are, are frequently misunderstood in the sort of post-liberal sphere. If you say yeah. truth enhances freedom, what people seem to think it means is if I make you say the truth, right. you'll be more free. That's right. But it's it the reciprocity. Like and that's why the reciprocity, that's right. that's right. That, that, that truth also depends on freedom. And I, I, uh, this, it's not this a one-way road. I, I think I understand the, um, at least in some part, why he's been kind of ignored here. Because I think a lot mm-hmm. of the like modern-day reaction against liberalism comes from this exhaustion with there not being a public meaning. Yeah. And so a lot of the response to it, because we're still operating in the liberal categories where nothing mm-hmm. has an intrinsic meaning, right. is just to make it have an external meaning. Yeah. Yeah. That's what people yeah. want. That's what they're yeah. seeing. Yeah. And he just refuses to do that. go there. And yeah. so uh, today, it seems to me we've entered into a sort of strange zone with this where he might, if he was looking to say the argument quite possibly, defend the neoconservatives more mm-hmm. <laughs> than the other people, because at least they think that freedom should be had. Yeah, they're not just yeah. reducing freedom to the idea of truth, you know. And yeah, right, like right. the, yeah, the carrying forward of the American intentions is important. Yeah. Like Americans want freedom. Yeah. And so a lot of Americans, when you say let's stop being liberal, they view it as an assault on their person, which it frequently is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. interesting. That sheds light uh, on, a, on an incident. <laughs> I don't know, Rodney, you were with me. We went to Columbia University and David Schindler was giving a talk there. And I had just had a conversation with George Weigel. I don't know how or why I wasn't really good buddies with George. He, to sales. he, he had come you, to the Your sales. blog oh, wasn't up and running yet, maybe. Yeah, anyway, he, he had, uh, George had just said to me something about, because uh, I had brought up David Schindler's name and George had said, oh yeah, Schindler, he sits down in Washington, D.C. in his metaphysical fog while the rest of us are out doing battle. And uh, so we went to Columbia then that after that evening and I ran into, you know, Dave right before he gave his talk and I said, by the way, you know, I don't want to upset you, but here's what Weigel said, you know, you're in your metaphysical fog. And that just enraged your father. Just his face turned beet red and he sat down immediately at a table and his le- right leg was shaking up and down furiously. <laughs> and he had his paper and he was scribbling and scratching all over it, making it. Thank you for telling me this. Thank you. Um, well, then he got up and he gave his talk and he never once mentioned any of that. And I said to him afterwards, I said, okay, I thought you were going to go on a rant about the neocons and George Weigel. Oh, I decided not to. And, and I, and I said, why? He goes, well, I wrote the words in anger and I decided yeah. not, to, but he goes, but I also don't want people to think I'm an integralist, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. and so, and he realized that, you know, what he had scribbled in the margins might lead people to think that he was an integralist, but he, yeah. He said to me, he, you know, and I'm not, I'm not an integralist. No, I'm not. Uh, not in the bad pejorative sense that everybody takes the word integralist to me. Right, yeah. right. 
I mean, key key here, it seems to me, is that he's very sensitive to the fact that this the misunderstanding of the God world relationship that that yeah. kind of comes to a head in liberalism is already there in nominalism, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. So yeah. right. So in, and also in the extrinsic understanding of the relationship between nature and grace, right? Right. So he so he's he's yeah, the reason people are misunderstanding him is because they're buying into that very problem one way or the other, right? right? And he just rejects that that right. approach all the way, right? So that so that um, and and it goes back to what you said about infinity, that all of our gropings towards God are already always within a constitutive relationship with God. Yeah. So it's yeah. never simply a kind of voluntarist thing, right? And therefore it can never be really a violent thing, right? It always has to be something yeah. that kind of teases out of you, which is something yeah. that's there yeah. in, in a loving way, very much the way parents kind of understand that their children are human beings, even though yeah. they're like animals sometimes. You're teasing out their humanity yeah. and you're trying to discourage the more animal behavior that they tend right. to engage in. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that you know, it is it is what ties all these things together and 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 with the nature grace question and the, the sort of political theology question is that if you think of the um, uh, Christian form as imposed simply from from above and from without, yep. um, it's 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 not the inf it's you know it's not the infinite God of love and it's not the trinitarian God it's not the yeah. Creator God and so forth but this then and it, it will always have a kind of coercive and violent sort of tonality but that that you know. And and then on the flip side, to think that it somehow just simply emerges from below, um, that's also uh, uh, a form of the same um, dualistic thinking. Yeah. So you know the only the only way to avoid violence is to make it you know part of our nature, kind of consistent part of our nature from from the very beginning and all the way up. And you know this is um, uh, one of the first essays Edmund Waldstein wrote on integralism when he was sort of discovering it, um, you know, he, he wrote, uh, uh, somewhere that he, he, uh, encountered the term first in reading my dad actually. Yeah. Um, and that let, that pointed him to a, uh, an essay by Balthazar. And then he said, and he said he read the essay by Balthazar and he started to realize that, that the things that Balthazar was criticizing as liberal as, uh, integralism he actually held. And so that, that kind of opened up this, you know, he developed it in absolutely his own way. But the, the thing that's kind of interesting there is um, he then turns around and criticized Waldstein turns around and criticizes Balthazar as, as thinking that the, the uh, movement to um, this sort of theological order comes simply from below, which is such a strange interpretation of Balthazar. But, but to me, it's just telling uh, because it gives expression. So, so, and, and instead of coming from below, he wanted to say, no, it comes from above, you know? Yes. And, and that's, that the, the problem is the, the, the moment you get locked into that either, or any, any response is going to be problematic. Mm -hmm. And, and, and then here's the deeper problem. And this maybe get, gets to, to one, one of the reasons why, um, and I would say not just my dad's position, but sort of the communio position, you know, communio is kind of falling off the map in these debates in some ways it's it's precisely because um you know if you if you think that it can only come from above then this talk is going to sound like an immanentist from below 
yeah. uh, approach. Whereas if you think it can only come from below, this is going to seem not re related because it's going to sound like it's coming from above. So you just, there's no, there's no place for it. It doesn't, you know, it, it seems too, um, it's too subtle and, and there's, it's not sensational. It doesn't, it doesn't make these like really kind of uh, crashing claims yeah. that we, we want on the internet. You know, we want in these, these kinds of discussions. Yeah. It's the same misunderstanding. I think that Blondell faced all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, you're an imminentist. Well, no, actually, I'm not. Oh, you're an objective. No, no, actually, I'm not that either. You know? Yeah. Right. Right. Not quite that simple. Well, we would be, I think, a bit remiss if we didn't also uh, move in a bit to a discussion of something a little denser uh, that maybe might lose some listeners, viewers. But it always struck me that at the heart and soul of your father's uh, metaphysical, um, his theological metaphysic, his metaphysical theology was his things he got from like people like Ken Schmitz, Norris Clark, Ferdinand Ulrich, the, yeah. the, the, the metaphysics of gift. So maybe yeah. you could talk about, I, I think we, we, we have to talk about that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And, you know, in a, in a certain sense, we were, we're saying so many of the same things in different language. I mean, in a right. way that, that, right. that is another way of saying that's the heart of what he's about, you know, memory of God or, or being his gift or, these 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 express something very similar um yeah uh uh you know it's it's ruben it's so interesting that you chose that particular i don't know that i've actually ever i've always known about that essay because it was his first one it was very close to another one i remember he he wrote on on uh more uh moral theology but but uh um i don't know that i've i've, I've read that but it but it's interesting because it actually re relates to precisely this theme um, and um, that that's you see it evidently in his criticism of of uh, the way he characterizes Aristotle there. And, 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 you know, he would be willing to give a much more nuanced interpretation of, of Aristotle from a certain perspective. But in any event, this idea that um, the world is constituted by just so many individual things. And these things have their, you know, they're first de defined in terms of themselves. And then if they interact with themselves, they, you know, they interact, uh, you know, through a kind of an external, through collisions of some sort, you know. So um, it's an the, atomistic the, factualism. Right, yeah. right. The the atoms in the void sort of thing. And and um, his notion of being his gift, um, I was actually just talking to uh, uh, William Desmond earlier um, about his notion of, earlier today, his notion of uh, the passio ascendi, the passion of being, which I think is very similar to the this theme in my my dad's thought. And that is that um, the act of being, you know, he uh, he he once expressed this metaphysically in terms of the essay ab, essay in, essay yeah. odd, yeah. that that to be is not just a kind of a static fact, but uh, to be to to be is always to be from to be in oneself and to be for another and there's a certain on the part of the creature a priority uh given to the to the being from which is um reuben you mentioned this the christ you know it's it's why we uh, we image god in christ not sort of immediately image god the father but we image god in and through christ and that means you know and christ is god precisely in the in the modality of receiving divine nature um 
so 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 that that's something that that characterizes the very structure <laughs> of things that we receive our being and um uh you know that might seem sort of abstract but it's 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 pretty extraordinary how many implications it has in every in every field it has implications for logic has implications for ethics for you know theology for for philosophy of science philosophy of nature i mean really everything economics i mean every math everything yeah Yeah, well that was that was always a uh you know very provocative thing that he would say is right even math there's there's a well it reminds me and i don't want to hijack the conversation rodney would know this so the one of the former presidents of DeSales university father dan gambit who was the late father gambit he's a great man actually and a great president and and uh, i pray for him uh but he made a big mistake he 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 hired a great philosophy and theology department and then he pretty much hired a group of techno pagans to staff every other position in the university and and when we would ask him about that he would say well there's no such thing as catholic computer science there's no such thing as catholic math so what difference does it make in those disciplines of course even on a practical level, that's nonsense because mm-hmm. faculty vote on curricula and stuff like that. Right. You know, and they form an ethos, a mystique and all that kind of thing. But anyway, so, yeah, I, I immediately thought of your dad say there is Catholic math. There is such a thing as Catholic math. Yeah. With qualification. Well, Ruben, well, yeah. Actually, you, yeah. Yeah. Ruben, I have you to ask, did he give an example of Catholic math? Was there like a <laughs> yeah. stock example? Uh, no, no, but I think that that insofar he his his point was that insofar as it exists at all, and you know that's an interesting question. It's that's that's ambiguous in 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 um, Aquinas, uh, uh, you know, whether math is good, um, and he says in a certain sense no, <laughs> um. Metaphysically speaking, because goodness pertains to existence and math is a pure formality and therefore doesn't exist. And so it's not good. I mean, uh, you know, he would qualify, too. I mean, but but it is kind of funny. Uh, You know, there is there is a certain question of what does it mean to say that math exists? But insofar as it exists at all and to to be able to talk about it means that it exists in some respect, it it shares in the act of being. And so it's going to have some of the essay structure. Now, I, I, I suspect that, um, you know, this doesn't mean that you, uh, first of all, you know, try to turn everything into sort of Trinitarian structures right. or you, you know, um, or, or you use, you know, theological examples to think through mathematics. But it does mean that, that um, someone who recognized this point would be inclined to think of even, even the formality of math can't be absolutized but we would ha- we would have to we would be in we would be inclined to um think about uh uh you know even the nature of number in a certain way i mean and and if that sounds bizarre um read uh jacob klein's book about uh on greek mathematics where he 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 makes a powerful profound case not from a catholic perspective of the difference between uh, a modern concept of number and an ancient concept of number. And you see that the difference between the two actually concerns fundamental metaphysical positions. And so, uh, you know, from my dad's perspective, you'd say, well, that's exactly the point. And insofar as it does 
concern metaphysical principles, then it's then you know these these whether one recognizes creation in the act of being and so forth will have a bearing in some respect. And I would add, and I think this is a terribly important point that you just made, uh, because it, 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 I would also add in, 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 in a university setting, and let's put yeah. it that way, because we can segue into your father's thinking about education as well. In university setting, what is significant about this is that it, it personalizes it to a certain extent, right? What makes Catholic math in some sense Catholic is that it's a Catholic doing it. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, all right. It's it's a Catholic doing math, which means then that that professor has the ability to make linkages, interdisciplinary mm -hmm. linkages that mm -hmm. a non-Catholic mathematician would not be able to make. Mm -hmm. And perhaps then, as you were pointing out, to even see numbers and the formal aspect of mathematics differently, precisely yeah. because they're a Catholic, which yeah. then allows them to make those interdisciplinary Linkages. I mean, uh, we have all had this experience, right, that some of the most eye-opening conversations we've had in a university with some of our secular counterparts, eye-opening for them, is mm -hmm. when they encounter a Catholic intellectual and realize that the Catholic intellectual knows their crap better than they do. All right. And and it's Rodney, like Richard Knoll and, and Sam Martineau and guys like that at DeSales who are brilliant in their own way, but they would sit down and talk to us and they'd say, holy we, we um, goodness. And mm -hmm. it's not that you and I knew their stuff better than they did. It was that we gave them a perspective mm -hmm. that they had never thought about before a way of a, an entry point, if you will, yeah. into their yeah. own discipline that they had not thought about. Before. Anyway, I don't want to dominate this, but anyway, I wanted to toss that in. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the priority of the concrete, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and, and that's what we're talking about in education. Ruben, did you want to add something to that? Um, no. Well, okay, good. Because <laughs> you didn't look like you did, but I, I'm, you know, like I said, we dragged you in here to the, into the dead of night. Uh, we have been going at this now for about an hour and 17, but I do, this is a natural segue point into the concept of, of education um, and, and how, you know, uh, how your father envisioned, uh, you know, what what would a Catholic university really look like? What should a Catholic? I remember um, at the the Balthazar conference that that I the, the actual official title in '96 was I think Balthazar in the Academy or something. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. James Burchill's book, The Dying of the Light, right. had just just right. come out, and your father spoke on that. And I remember. The president of the sales at the time, Father Bernie O'Connor, turned to Rodney and I, and he'd heard the talk, said, that's that's the vision that we want. Too bad he didn't follow through on it, but that's the vision that we want. So maybe you could comment a little bit. What was your father's vision of, of, of higher education? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it really was a central. It's interesting. I mean, already in his dissertation, it was a, a very... Um, incredible. I mean, you think some of that stuff is abstract or or technical that you were reading Ruben I don't know if you've looked at his dissertation but I mean it's uh, I actually started looking at it uh earlier this evening but I didn't oh. get very far yeah 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 it's it's relentless but then he suddenly if I recall correctly he has a, you know a kind of concluding chapter and you know says okay what does this all have to do with the Catholic University you know I mean and it's just amazing <laughs> that, that he would be uh, and he and he was engaging with with uh, uh, Hesburgh and Land O'Lakes and 
forth. And, and um, it seems to me um, uh, one of the basic points is that um, uh, uh, if, if, the, if, if the mission of the church and in especially the mission of the laity in the church is to give the world the form of Christ, you know, to help um, um, to, to, incarnate the form of Christ in the world. Um, one of the most um, crucial dimensions of that is the uh, order of the mind, sort of the, 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 the order of thought. And um, he would, he really believed that, that um, that dimension of things was almost entirely um, ignored and neglected. So, so, you know, we attend to this question of of um, a Catholic interpretation of economics. You, you might have, you know, interest in that, and in, in, you know how we um, how we uh, order a household or politics, how we order the culture, or you know these various other realms. But um, for some reason, we think that that um, the question of how the mind is ordered is not relevant, and so his insight was that, in fact, you know, if we give that up, in a way, we're giving up the substance of all of these other things. It actually bears on everything else. Mm -hmm. And and um, and so uh, this idea of, you know, and what what did it mean that the first universities grew up out of, you know, um, uh, you know, in a certain sense, um, the, the 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 cathedral schools and um, in a certain sense, an extension of the. Uh, religious orders um they were they were born out of the middle ages and out of the the, the church of the middle ages um, and then uh, so he was profoundly interested then in the history why did why did education separate from that and what are the implications for the order of the mind and once we see those implications how does that go on to a to uh bear you know uh, consequences in every other dimension of human life. So, so he wanted to talk about like conceiving a curriculum. What's the order of a curriculum? Or how the disciplines relate to each other, precisely as a way of raising this question of the Catholic order of intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a thought that goes with that, David. That that's um, that's that's brilliant. I mean, he, you would ask him, like, you know, well, what about the separation of church and state, or or whatever, you know, and 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 he, or or what do you want an established religion, right? And he'd be like, mm -hmm. we have one, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? So yeah. so so it's interesting that the the university in that kind of an understanding, and he's, I mean, there's this profound sense in which he's just simply right about that. I mean, there's it's obviously the case. That liberalism, classical liberalism, in its aggressive form, has become a quasi-religion, right? And, and, it's, and it's and it's and it's when we proselytize. I mean, right? So, so how does this tie into the university? It seems to me that that, that a, a university is either going to be religious in the right way, or it's going to be religious in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And and um, it, it's you know we're always told as theology professors in yeah. Catholic universities, you know, don't pro this is not about catechizing and proselytizing you know this yeah. is an academic institution and we should be you know just right. you know throwing out there's only there what do they always say there's uh there's no answers only questions and then when yeah. Says, yeah. I, I always say is that a question or an answer you know but uh, right <laughs> but um but 
<laughs> but the but the but the point is that what is obvious to anybody who teaches in a dysfunctional American university is that we are proselytizing liberalism. Yeah, it's, it's right. not even right. evangelization. It's not legitimate. Right. It's 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 propaganda. Yeah, and and it's being proposed by every department in the university in their own way. Right. Right. And so. Right. And so, right. and then people are paranoid that if a Catholic university is really Catholic, oh my gosh, they're ramming Catholic Catholicism down people's throats and stuff. It's, it, yeah. but nobody notices that we're doing, we're doing that in every university in some yeah. sense, but your dad yeah. saw that already. Yeah, right, right, right. No, no, that's, that's yeah. an excellent point. And, and, and the irony is, I mean, so this would be part of, part of his argument is that, um, um, not only are we, um, you know, in proselytizing liberalism thoughtlessly. Yes. You know, it's it's there are some people that do it deliberately, but for the most part, it happens unconsciously. Um, to the extent that that's the case, we're actually also undermining the integrity of the very subject we're teaching. And and you know, so and this is sort of response to Ruben's point earlier. You know, it's not like okay, you can't help but impose some view so we may as well impose a catholic one rather than the other the the, the idea is that if you if you have a genuine you know um if love is the meaning of being love implies a certain way of things relating to each other and that even means the disciplines in their relationships to each other and love is always liberating of difference and integrity and so forth and so um uh, a catholic university is one in which each individual um discipline would 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 you know uh radiate its own glory in a way um uh precisely in a way that 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 magnifies the the, the integrity and glory of the other disciplines mm -hmm. and you know in a certain sense the name jesus wouldn't necessarily even have to come up you know so it's not so it's not like a it's not like you're you're making things catholic the point yeah. is uh, uh, being true to a genuinely Catholic, big C and small C, and small C because big C, sense of creation and and destiny of the world and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to say something. Well, I keep losing my train of thought tonight. But uh, oh, um, does anybody else have anything they want to add about education and and David's? David Schindler's thoughts on education before I sort of move on to the next point. And is this, I want, it's a return to the, the, to the question of politics and we do kind of have to wrap this up. Uh, but one of the accusations from the neoconservatives against David Schindler is that his ideas are impractical, yeah. idealistic, <laughs> right? Uh, oh, you know, and we all get all four of us sitting here. Get this. You guys, you new polity guys get it. We all get this, which is OK, Mr. Smarty Pants, Mr. Post liberal critic of everything that's good, wholesome and wonderful in America. What's your what's your idea? What's yeah. your wonderful substitute for this glorious thing we call America? And, and uh, nothing irritates me more when I get that question. And yet also nothing sort of stops me in my tracks quicker because then yeah. I have to admit, I don't know. Yeah. 
I, I can't answer that question for you. And so I'll turn it over to you, Dave. Did your dad have an answer to that question? I, well, you know, I, that, that's that's interesting. Uh, I'd like to hear Ruben on this one in particular. I mean, you probably get that a little less than the rest of us because, you know, there's, I mean, you guys are doing quite a uh, concrete, practical sort of thing there. It's that's not like you're just sitting yeah. around thinking. You're um, making stuff. <laughs> Well, I, the way I think about it, some of us are making stuff. I don't mean that other of us aren't, yeah. but I mean, like our institution is not making stuff. Yeah. The yeah. people who are in the institution also make stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. We do get it. We do get it a lot, especially at our conferences, people saying, but what do we do where we are? Because uh, there, there's if for people who are familiar with us you know it, it, i can it can sometimes get to the point where people get the impression the solution is move to steubenville and come here and do the stuff with us and that uh can't be right uh obviously you know maybe some people should but the thing is that if it's true it can be done anywhere right and uh it, it shouldn't depend on being in a particular place or having certain resources available to you yeah um I, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I get I that all the time. Up, if I can pick up on that, just if it's true, it can be done anywhere. I think that would be the heart of my dad's point. And I, there are a couple things he would say. I mean, one is that when people want a you know uh, a practical solution, they tend to have a very um, abstract sense of what practice is, mm -hmm. um, and very sort of formal and only. I mean, you know, um, in fact. If you think about these things, it transforms the way you act. I mean, it transforms every relationship you have. And so in a way, it's incredibly practical. You're, everything you do is going to be given a different expression if you see the truth of these things. So it really does become incarnate in a very concrete way. Now, you know, um, depending on vocation, that will have uh, a, a broader or a, 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 sm a smaller, more local impact but that's a secondary question and then and then the other thing that my dad you know was was a constant thing for him is that um the the uh you know he always one of the slogans i think did he get this from boober or somebody maybe from carl bart anyway success is not one of the names of god <laughs> yeah um, and yeah. and this idea that which uh i think newhouse brings up and saying well that's not an answer you can't. Well, I mean, but and so that 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 was part of his point. It's sort of if you if you, um, I mean, uh, as he always used to say, you know, too bad Jesus didn't live in the 21st century when we had internet, and you know, he never would have been crucified. He would have had all these programs in place. He would have, you know, he would have just done so much more good than he did, right? I mean, which obviously is totally ridiculous. And and his point is that that you know. Um, that the incarnation was was in in a basic way uh, an act of suffering, and uh, that has to mean something for the meaning of Christian existence. That there is a kind of um, suffering through of the absence of meaning in the world that that that's around us, and that's a profound gift. In fact, both to us and to the world and the potential fruit that it bears, but to, 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 to suffer it rather in the, uh, even more basically than to, uh, you know, institute a program of change. 
Yeah. Which, again, which doesn't mean that you don't also at some level and at some point try to institute change, but it's, yeah. um, it's that's not what you identify with action. It, 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 something's kind of interesting. I just thought of this. I've been, I'm, I do my kind of at the beginning of my intro class. Now I do a kind of history of of religion um, mm-hmm. to get them to understand the nature of religion in a non-Lockean way. That's my, yeah, yeah. That's my whole thing. Yeah. But it's fascinating when I when we get to that, like, you know, the axial age, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this kind of interesting breakthrough after the fall of the Bronze Age is a big collapse of civilization in about 1200 BC, where the, you know, the Egyptian empire, there's these massive empires and lots of cities, and they're all kind of overextending themselves. And they're all, you know, libido dominant, you know, they're all trying to dominate and and, and it's all techne, techne, they're all, you know, trying to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, it like collapses pretty early. And then we have this like a dark age for several hundred years and then all of a sudden, in different parts of the world, you get people like uh, Confucius, the right. Buddha, the prophets uh, of, of Israel. Um, uh, Hinduism is trans- c- c- kind of goes from being polytheistic to being mystical. Or Plato. Yeah, Plato. <laughs> no, the Greeks. What am I saying? Yeah, for, let's not forget the Greeks, right? You know, Theophanes, mm-hmm. and these guys, Xenophanes, you know, critiquing yeah. the, the polytheistic gods. Um None of these people are people of action, really. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, they're, not, yeah, they're, right. they're, they're like the prophets aren't really, they're not doing anything to Israel. They're not like, oh, let me run for office or Confucius. Right. I mean, what's he doing? You know, he's not the emperor of China. He, you know, um, they're all saying, hey, let's slow down for a minute and yeah. this thing through because we're going to yeah. destroy everybody if we don't, you know? And so there's just something eminently practical about taking time to think the thing through before we can prove that it's going to change the world immediately or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, on, on, on that line, um, something that occurred to me to to mention to my uh, class um, last semester and the intro again, you know, because there, there is a kind of a, uh, a fundamental anti-intellectualism in, in the American spirit, which is very fascinating to me. But, you know, I, I, I point out, you know, that um, uh, I think a lot of our students, precisely because they're such good natured students, they feel a little guilty studying theology because it seems sort of self-indulgent. And they and they they try to, to justify it to themselves by thinking that this will help, you know, the more I learn, the more I'll be able to do in the world. And, and you know, again, that's not false. But but do you see there, there's a there's this kind of something isn't good unless it has practical results. There is a certain. But, I, you know, I I, I, uh, I contrast two things. You have, you know, Marx's famous line. The point isn't to think about the world. The point is to change it. Mm-hmm. And there was such a radical nihilism that was built into that. And then I and then I contrast that to uh, a story I heard of, of someone and I can't even remember who it was, but I was just listening to this interview of of a of a guy who ended up having a very fruitful life. I just can't remember what it was in, but he was talking about his um, how he came to be who he was, and he mentioned a class that he took as an undergraduate, and he walked into the class and this teacher. Um, just presented this 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 vision of reality and and he said he walked out he said it was just one day he walked out of that class and the whole world had changed yeah yeah, yeah. i thought there you go 
that's yeah. a <laughs> that's, that's a right. different kind of change. Yeah. And oh geez, Dave froze up again. Right at the very end, he's frozen in a speaking pose. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I, okay. I, I don't I know. Just, we learned our lesson. Don't say marks out loud. It'll freeze. <laughs> yeah, the, then it gets that air. way. Yeah. You know, that's all that's all very true. And we, and we kind of have to wrap it. I mean, I get that question a lot too. I mean, I, I own and run this Catholic worker farm here in northeastern PA and I get emails every day. Oh, you know, how do, how do you, how do we do this? How do we, what, what's the practical? And I say, Oh, I was a professor for 20 years. And at age 55, I quit my job and bought this ramshackle hole in the ground up here and did something. I said, that's what I did. Okay. And I can't tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell the world what it should do. This is what I did. Right. And to go to piggyback on what you and Rodney are saying, it was the fruit of decades of reading (laughs) and decades of changing this and this. All right. And and to go back to Rodney's comments about the axial period, I think that's an absolutely brilliant uh, sort of insight you have that none of those guys were were doers, that they were thinkers. But it also argues for the quality of the cultus. Yeah. That, that that what they influenced and what they changed was the cultus yeah. out of which out of which a civilization arose. And that's something that we've kind of lost right. in this stage too. So what I, what I say to people, if you, you want to change, then then, then uh, you know, improve the cultus of your life mm-hmm. and your participation in the cultus of the church. Um, and 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 things will flow from that. Anyway, that's my two cents. Um, um, if, if go ahead, I say something on, on this no. topic, um, yeah. one, this is not related to the topic, but I'd be remiss if I did not mention more clearly that, uh, new polity press is publishing a collection of, of Schindler's essays on America oh, yeah. sometime <laughs> later this year, we hope it should be titled yeah. America in the mystery of Christ and the church. Nice. Uh, and it'll be a long essay, uh, at the front by me, which I don't know if that's a feature or not. I can't tell you, but it will be there. Um, <laughs> But, but in relation to what do we do, you mentioned metaphysics of gift and, and you mentioned, David, uh, the, the threefold like essay ob, mm-hmm. essay in, essay odd, essay ob being being from. And uh, you're, you're undoubtedly correct there. You can't tell people what to do. You can say what you did. But yeah. having read a lot of Schindler, I mean, it's still the form of the thing, right? Like all, right. The, right. All, the, all the things you might do are going to have the same form, the form of Christ. And yeah. fundamentally, that's a receiving. Yeah. And um, one yes. of the impressions people get from Schindler, at least they got it a lot in the middle of that whole debate, was that he just didn't like America, that he wanted to level it to the ground or replace it with something else, maybe something like, you know, France around the 12th century. Um, but he just didn't like America. He didn't want to be American. He didn't care about the founding fathers. And I don't think this is true. I I think if you start from the standpoint of being as fundamentally a receiving, it's not only the fact that God is there before you, but the world is there before you and the world is God's before you do anything to make it God's. And so he has an, he has an essay where he has a sentence. He never says this quite anywhere else, but I, I love it. I think he's absolutely right. He refers to the traditionalist versus modernist terms of debate in which the church, and he has a bracketed phrase with an exclamation point, the church and the world 
mm. exclamation point, have been locked in the modern period. Traditionalist, mm. modernist. Yeah. And yet we're stuck here as Americans. I mean, yeah. we are. I don't know how many of the listeners, I don't know where they're from, but we have founding fathers like Jefferson. We have a world formed by them in this way. You go and you teach at a university and it's got the structure, which is... Uh, thoughtlessly proselytizing liberalism is all just handed to you. Mm -hmm. And yet you can't not receive it. There's, there's something about the, the the primary filial posture that he's, he's talking about the metaphysics of gift that you have to find in what you receive, how God is already there and help bring it out and help it be seen. And so I think we're sort of stuck like whether people are traditionalists or modernists, the people who come before us and the people we're around and receiving from in, in our lives, like whether they have a fixation with the truth or with freedom, you know, the traditionalist, modernist sort of thing, they're coming from a standpoint and they have a reason for it. It's part of their engagement with meaning. Yeah. They don't know what it is. They can't see the whole picture. And what do you do is part of it. You try to help bring it out and bring out yeah. where it is. And it, it, it's, it's a very deeply non-oppositional thing. He's saying nice. <laughs> helping people find the meaning in their being on the basis of where they are and what they're finding important and pulling it together, showing how the whole is already there. And that takes a lot yeah. of different forms, but I think that is the, the, the gestalt of it. Thank yeah. you. Ruin, that was beautiful, Pot. Beautiful. Uh, that, that, I, I love that. Yeah. And maybe that's in the long essay at the front of that book. I don't remember now. <laughs> I'm really, but I, 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 but now, I really, now everybody's going to have to buy it and find out. So, well, you know what? I'm, Ruben, I'm glad to hear that New Polity is doing that because at the end of our conversation here, I was going to very presumptuously make a suggestion to Comunio. That they gather up all of uh, the yeah. essays of 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 your father, David, and publish them. Uh, you know, yeah, we're a, in fact the, the Humanum Academic Press is going to do something, uh, some kind of a collected volume or two. And uh, when when Ruben contacted me a year or so ago, a while back, about uh, I don't remember how it all sort of arose as a possibility. We thought that would be. Um, one way to distinguish if, if you know, if and when the Humanum Academic Press does something, um, New Polity could publish the essays on America that has a certain distinct um, um, kind of circumference, which seemed appropriate and also is fitting for their press. So um, well, that we would, certainly wouldn't yeah. be here without the heart of the world center of the church. I, I, um, I mean, you know, Mark Barnes, yeah. New Polity, yeah. the first conversation I had with him was at least in part about that book. So, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah so for the viewers and listeners know what we're talking about here. It's it's a book. It's a collection of essays by David Shin, the heart of the world, center of the church. And that essay I mentioned earlier about T.S. Eliot, Time and Eternity is, mm-hmm. is, is in that book as well. So I would recommend that people run out and buy that book. I would also recommend that anyone listening all of you, all the subscribers to my blog, everybody that watches my YouTube channel, that follows my podcast, all the emails I get. What should I do? Who should I read? Subscribe to Comunio. All right. Take Thank out you. a subscription to Comunio. And new polity. Po- oh, yes. Okay, Ruben. And new polity. And new polity. New polity. Uh, and 
you know, I've been a subscriber. My subscription to Comunio follows the biography of my life to an extent because I've been subscribing since the late 70s, which is when I first went to seminary. And then there's a two year hiatus in my subscription. I got to make this up somehow. But, but when I left this between when I left the seminary and then started grad school, there's like 1986 to 1988 when I was just out working in the world and decided I don't need none of that. their fancy theology stuff. And so you go back here to my shelf and I've got every communio going back to 1978 or something, except for 1986 and 87. So somehow I have to make that up. Oh, but anyway, no. uh, people need to subscribe to communio and new polity. Gentlemen, this has been a really great conversation. We've been at it for about an hour and 40 minutes. Ruben, especially, I want to thank you for coming on for, on such short notice. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you though, you know, well, thank you. that's thanks to David C. Schindler sitting over here. And because yeah. uh, we we really wanted to get a fourth person on here because Rodney and Dave and I have had many, many, many podcasts together before. And so it's getting a bit in-house, a bit inside baseball with the three of us. To, so we wanted to get an outsider. So it, it was great having you come in. But also, uh, David, um, th thank you for coming on tonight. And uh, I don't know why I, I want to say this, but thank you for the gift of your father. I know that you're not <laughs> for the gift that your father was. And yet somehow, because he's not here to thank, I'm going to thank you. Thank him through you, uh, thank for, you. for the great gift of, of, of your father, uh, who I considered to uh, have been the greatest Catholic American intellectual uh, of my lifetime, and maybe ever, maybe the greatest Catholic American thinker of all time. Uh, I know that's a big claim, uh, and maybe I'm just being projecting my own autobiography and his influence on it. But I really, truly believe that. Does Do you guys have any last words, parting words that you want to say? Uh, just, uh, you know, thank you for for uh, doing this, the, the work of your not only on the farm, but the blog. That's another thing that you're doing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yes. Uh, Many people have benefited from it, so thank, thank you for you. that. And and I, I I'm thankful to my dad too for, uh, you know, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't ever have have uh, have have met you guys. So, yeah, that's true. Yes, yeah. it, he was the key that brought it together. And Ruben, I I hope our paths cross in person again. Some they and I expect they will. And my dear friend Rodney, thank you again, sir. Hopefully our paths will, paths will cross over some bourbon and cigars in the warmer weather ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Uh, and, and please uh, remember in your prayers as well, David L. Schindler. Thank you. Uh, uh, remember in your prayers, David L. Schindler, a great man. And so thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you to my, to my guests today. Thank you. Cheers, gents. Cheers.